Listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. Sponsored by Greenberg Traurig, LLP. Listeners know well that the Middle East presents a myriad of complex issues that emanate from the region's geography its culture, and history. The subject of the Kurds is one that is multifaceted, and it is perhaps today particularly deserving of our attention as the prospect of stability in Turkey, Iraq, and Syria is unlikely without some accommodation with the Kurds. To discuss this, I'm joined by Bayan Sami Abdulrahman, who serves as the Kurdistan Regional Government Representative to the United States in Washington. Prior to her appointment of KRG representative to the United States, Mrs. Abdulrahman was the High Representative to the United Kingdom. Before her two political appointments as a representative, she was a working journalist for 17 years with The Observer and later at the Financial Times. Thank you so much for being with us in Dallas. Thank you for having me. There's been a great deal of coverage in the media following Iraqi Prime Minister Hadir al-Abadi's statement recently that he wanted to congratulate quote, our Kurdish citizens in Kurdish, he spoke, on the occasion of the New Year, Norwa's celebration. Why was this so noteworthy, and how did it happen? First of all, Kurdish is one of the two official languages in Iraq. If you think about Canada, all officials are forced to learn French. I assume that the majority speak English. And I have seen myself with the foreign minister of Canada she will make a short statement in French and then speak in English. And we've seen that here with the Consulate General. So when the Iraqi constitution was drafted and then ratified in 2005, Kurdish and Arabic were both recognized as the two official languages of Iraq. We dreamt that we would have a similar situation as Canada or perhaps Wales in the United Kingdom or the Basque country in Spain where both languages would be written on street signs and officials would speak both. But the reality is that Kurdish is really only spoken in the region, Kurdistan region, and Arabic is spoken mm -hmm. elsewhere. So the, the idea that the two official languages would coexist everywhere in Iraq hasn't taken off at all, which I think is a mistake for all of us, not just for the Kurds, but also for our Arab fellow Iraqis, because learning somebody else's language takes you so much closer to their culture. But this culture. was really a political statement for him to do this now, wasn't it? It was. I think it was a gesture of goodwill after a lot of rancor that has gone on, particularly in the period since we had our independence referendum at the end of September. So it was a gesture of goodwill, and it was certainly received in that light. But I think there is also maybe an element of this is 13 years too late. From 2005, we should have heard this. The referendum, of course, was very controversial among some of our allies and your allies, and yet it took place. And, and what was the percentage of the vote? It was passed, but what was the percentage? Yes, so the independence vote took place on September 25th, and the turnout was, I believe, 72%. So that's not bad. Mm -hmm. Seven out of 10 turned out to vote, and 93% voted yes. But Baghdad really took some punitive measures against yes. your region because of this. What were some of those acts that the government took? 
Yes, that's right. Uh, Baghdad closed Kurdistan's airspace to international flights. So there was an air blockade on Kurdistan. You could still fly to Baghdad, for example. But I think in the atmosphere immediately after the referendum, many people didn't feel safe, frankly, going mm -hmm. to Baghdad. The other punitive measures were to stop the oil production at Kirkuk. Kirkuk is one of the major oil fields in Iraq, and we had been exporting the oil from Kirkuk through the Kurdistan oil pipeline to Turkey and from Turkey to the world markets. And there had been an agreement between us and Baghdad that we would share the revenues. And this is what was happening. After the referendum, Baghdad stopped oil production. They're literally putting the so oil So that hurt back. them as well. It definitely hurts all of Iraq, right. but it hurts us more mm -hmm. because half of our revenues disappeared. That's a huge hit when you consider that this came after three and a half years, now four years, of Baghdad cutting off Kurdistan's share of the federal budget. We haven't had our share of the federal budget. What I'm trying to understand is what motivated this recent change that seems to be almost a reconciliation, if that's a fair word. Some of those measures have been lifted. The oil production in Kirkuk hasn't started again, and restarting them would be a big gesture of goodwill and have a huge impact on our economy. The international flights have resumed. That is a very big step, and that's been welcome. Prime Minister Abadi released about $270 million to pay the salaries of Kurdish civil servants in Peshmerga. It's not very much. Our bill, our monthly bill, is about twice that. But it still helps. Any money coming into Kurdistan helps. And the gesture is much bigger than the amount of money that came along. Mm -hmm. The Kurdish Peshmerga and Iraqi forces and Iran-backed militias are still standing face-to-face ready to confront each other in many places. We want to move from just having a truce, which is where we are right now, to actually standing everybody down and having a dialogue that really brings about a more permanent settlement. The recent steps, they are welcome, but mm -hmm. they're still small. You know, your region was doing so well from, I guess, what, a decade of 2003 or four to about 12 or 13, yes. and then ISIS began to really gather strength, and there was loss of territory, humanitarian crisis. Give us a sense of how bad that was, and how is the recovery? When ISIS attacked Sinjar, which is the home of the Yazidi minority, in August 2014, they also attacked the Christians, they attacked others, Kurds, Shia, and Sunnis as well. Everybody got caught up in this. It was horrific. They were committing genocide. They were literally raping and pillaging. They enslaved thousands of women and girls, as well as men and boys, but the larger number were women and girls. And many have been rescued and returned. But even today, more than 3,000 Yazidi women and girls are enslaved by ISIS, and they're being sold on these human trafficking markets around the Middle East. So I would say for the Yazidis and the Christians, they suffered the greatest trauma, the genocide, the loss of life, the loss of their homes. But I would say for all of us, all of us in Kurdistan, it's been a terrible time, as well as what we all witnessed and the threat from ISIS mm -hmm. that was at our doorstep. We have had 2,000 Peshmerga lose their lives fighting ISIS. 
More than 10,000 have been wounded. Many cities, villages, towns have been utterly devastated by ISIS. They destroyed everywhere they went. And then besides that, there have been huge hits to our economy. So in 2014, before ISIS came, Baghdad cut off Kurdistan's budget. So that was the first economic hit. Then suddenly ISIS appeared and we found ourselves fighting a very expensive war. That was the second hit to our economy. Then we had a flood of refugees and displaced people. At the peak, Kurdistan was housing 1.8 million Syrian refugees and displaced Iraqis. Our population is only 5 million. So that's the 30% increase in our population. So you're caught in the same situation as is Lebanon and Jordan. Yes, exactly. We just have another minute or two, and I wanted to ask you probably one of the most difficult questions for our listeners. Explain to us the relationship between the Syrian Kurds and the Iraqi Kurds, and who do you represent? So before I answer that, I just want to say one thing about all of the terrible things that I've been describing about what's been happening in Kurdistan and Iraq and the tragedies we faced. The people of Kurdistan are extremely resilient and we have faced worse times and we've recovered and I believe that we will this time as well. Who I represent, I represent only Kurdistan region in Iraq, Mm -hmm. which is recognized in the Iraqi constitution as a region with a government and all of those institutions that go with it. Our relationship with the Kurds in Syria is a bond that is like a family. We are bonded by blood and belonging. I myself have relatives in Syria. My maternal grandmother was a Syrian Kurd. So I have very large number of relatives in Qamishli, Hasaka, and so on. We are bonded by language, custom, culture, heritage, all of those things. We are divided by these international borders, and those borders mean that the people of Syria, the Kurds in Syria, have to deal with the Syrian government. We, the Kurds in Iraq, have to deal with the Iraqi government. Is there someone representing the Syrian Kurds in a similar position of yours? There isn't Kurdistan region in a similar way in Syria as there is in Iraq. In Iraq, we have a status within the constitution. Mm -hmm. In Syria, there is a de facto Kurdish enclave, as people call it, and they describe them as cantons. There is a lady in Washington who does represent the administration of one of those cantons in Syria. Now, you do not carry diplomatically the rank of ambassador. You're a representative. Yes. Does that mean in Washington that you do not attend some of the meetings that a member of the diplomatic corps, or are you sort of in that same position as, say, Taiwan, or, how, yeah, or the PLO, I, or Palestine? I, I would say we are in a similar position to them. There are definitely diplomatic protocols where non-ambassadors are not invited and not included. So we are in a very similar situation to Taiwan and Hong Kong and Mm -hmm. places like that. But honestly, I really believe that in our day-to-day work, in the things that really matter, we have the access that we need. I've never been refused a meeting with the State Department, Mm -hmm. with the White House, with the DOD. And that's because we have a strong partnership with the United States. And you have lots of credibility, I might add. I hope that we do. We try to present our case as honestly as possible. Before we walk over and meet our members, let me ask you about the current U.S. administration. Has the U.S. position vis-a-vis the Kurdish situation been consistent? 
If you mean the current administration, I suppose it has in that very soon after President Trump came into power, within a few months in June 2017, we announced the date of our independence referendum. And immediately the US administration, the White House, State Department, DOD more quietly, but all of them were consistent in saying that they opposed the referendum and that it wasn't the right time to hold it. So in that way, they've been consistent. They have also been consistent in the aftermath of the referendum, where it appeared that Baghdad was punishing the Kurds and that the US agreed with it. And when I was saying this to members of Congress, saying this to the National Security Council and the State Department, they'd get very upset and they would say, the US doesn't want to punish the Kurds, you're our partners. And I would say, well, it looks like punishment for, from where we're sitting. But there was a change in that the US administration has since then been consistent in saying we were against the referendum, but we're now moving on. And we believe that a strong Kurdistan region, economically strong, politically strong and united within Iraq, is in the interests of Kurdistan, in the interests of Iraq, and in the interests of the United States. So in those areas, they've been consistent with us. If our listeners want to understand this situation as well as possible, what should they read? Which newspaper? Which reporter? That's a very good question. I think there are some think tanks in Washington who put up everything on their website, so most of their stuff is there for free. I would recommend the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. Mm -hmm. That's very helpful. The USIP, US Institute for Peace in Washington. There are many great think tanks. In terms of journalists, I think David Ignatius at the Washington Post, Michael Gordon, now yes. the Wall Street Journal. He is, yeah. The New York Times coverage is always good. We don't always agree with what they say, by the way, and we challenge them and write letters. No, I understand, but it's helpful to know what you think is good reporting. And of the international newspapers, I say the Financial Times, not only because I worked there, I genuinely believe the Financial Times has people who really understand the Middle East and, of course, the economists. Of course, yep. Yeah. I always recommend that. Yes. I want to thank you so much for spending time with us today. And Pleasure. let's go meet the members. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org. Global IQ Minute is sponsored by Greenberg Traurig LLP, a global firm with 2,000 attorneys in 38 offices across the globe. Visit the firm at gtlaw.com. <laughs>